LinkedIn presents. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development, where we share original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We hope you join us often for practitioner-oriented content around all things related to leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Arthur Woods about his book, Hiring for Diversity, the guide to building an inclusive and equitable organization. Arthur Woods, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. We're going to be talking about your book, Hiring for Diversity, The Guide to Building an Inclusive and Equitable Organization. Such a hugely important topic, uh, very timely. Uh, And in fact, it's so timely that last week when we had originally scheduled this interview, we ended up just chatting in the pre-interview for far too long so we had to reschedule to make sure we had time to actually do the interview <laughs> itself because there's just so that's many a good sign <laughs> so many interesting things going on right now um so many current events so you know there's just so much happening in the world and this is relevant to all of it so i'm super mm-hmm. excited to be able to uh, chat with you about this and learn more about your experiences and your insights around uh, inclusivity um diversity equity inclusion and belonging. Arthur Woods is a social entrepreneur and LGBTQ plus advocate working at the intersection of equity, inclusion, and technology. He is an Amazon national bestselling author for the book, Hiring for Diversity, and the co-founder of Matheson, a venture-backed technology platform, equipping employers with everything they need to manage their diversity hiring efforts. Arthur was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 and 40 Under 40 by BEQ. He is a three-time TEDx speaker and has advised leading brands from Disney, Sonos, and MetLife to the Smithsonian. Again, a pleasure to have you, Arthur. Anything else you would like to share with me by way of your background, personal context, before we dive on in further? No, John, I'm excited to be here and and, uh, really excited to dive in. As you said, this is a topic that is very much top of mind for so many leaders right now. So I'm glad that we're getting some, some time to talk about it. Yeah, excellent. Well, why don't you start by just giving us a little bit back, little bit of background to the book? Why this book? Why now? Why is this something that you um, decided was necessary today? Sure, John. So, you know, for the last few years, I think we're all aware that diversity has risen to uh, a very top priority for most organizations. Um, you know, we saw so many leaders this last couple of years identified that they had major gap in representation. They um, started to acknowledge that something needed to change. And 
I found that many leaders had vastly different perceptions of what change was needed, what success fundamentally looks like. Um, I would speak to leaders who had vastly different definitions of what diversity was itself. And um, everyone seemed to be getting, you know, different recommendations and insights about what they should do. And there was a unanimous, you know, a unanimous belief that not enough is being done. So seeing kind of the, the you know, variance across the, the space, I saw the need to have a uh, you know, a, a, an actionable and accessible playbook um, that could give leaders practical insights of how to go from intense to action around diversity. And we all know that there's a need, but I think most leaders are struggling with the how. They're not struggling with the why. Um, so in speaking to hundreds of leaders, uh, actually getting a chance to sit down with, you know, dozens upon dozens of community leaders across different underrepresented groups. Um, I was able to work with my co-author, Susanna, to build out uh, basically a, a practical playbook. Um, and this covers everything from how do we, you know, fundamentally rethink what we mean by diversity? How do we write inclusive job descriptions and craft uh, more accessible role requirements? All the way to the way that we interview, the way that we craft inclusive uh, job offers, and that we activate diversity recruiting across our organization. And honestly, John, it became a labor of love, right? It, it really was um, this, this fascinating uh, journey of, of collecting these insights, putting them in one place, and, and, and you know, kind of learning from leaders how the insights land uh, in terms of their organization. Yeah, and the, the labor of love, I think, is something I hear commonly from from those who are practitioners in the space and ultimately decide you know a book is necessary and uh certainly mm -hmm. certainly this this one is and you just highlighted a whole bunch of the the subtopics that i think are essential as we're trying to hire for diversity and and truly uh get e even get beyond the the diversity um piece not just getting people at the table but now creating an inclusive environment, uh, a culture mm -hmm. of belonging where everyone feels truly valued, needed, wanted, the opportunity to contribute in meaningful ways. Um, mm -hmm. All of that is so important. But it starts with getting, you know, having inclusive hiring efforts and, and focusing on the equity and diversity piece from the mm -hmm. get go. Uh, so we can dig into some of those specific areas that you just mentioned, um, because I think that'll be helpful for a lot of listeners. Um, but I also just wanted to to highlight um, from the outset that yeah. the why behind all of this, hopefully for most people, is pretty clear. Um, but yeah. in, in case in case it's not, you know, there's a clear business case for all of this. Uh, organizations perform better. Uh, they they have more creativity and innovation. Um, teams are more productive when you mm -hmm. leverage effective diversity within organizations. Um, but it's also the right thing to do from a human perspective. The human case coupled with the business case should make it a no-brainer that every organization wants to be paying attention to this and making sure that we're um, fostering a really wonderful environment uh, where, where everyone feels valued. And when that happens, you know, not only is it better for the individuals, it's better for the team, it's better for the organization as a whole. Yeah, yeah, that, that's spot on. And to your point, we have to really kind of bring this back to the human case. It, you know, the business case sometimes can disguise us from the core essence of, of what we're really trying to achieve. And if we get to the, the heart of DEI, you know, the not kind of stigmatized and politicized view of it, um, it's, you know, what are the conditions that we can create to unleash the potential of our teams? And 
if we think about the practical case of having a representative team that's reflective of the customers you're trying to serve, that fosters diversity of thought, that creates safety where people can raise their hand and make things better. Those are the conditions. I don't know about you, John, but those are the conditions that I, I believe every single team, regardless of, you know, sort of their, their leaning uh, politically will, will thrive in. Um, And I think in fact, a lot of the recent events um, have created these kind of unnecessary headwinds for diversity um, and have created a bit of a stigmatized kind of politicized view of it that's, that's created, I think, a, a sentiment among some to say, oh, we can kind of take our, our, our focus off of this, or actually this might even be more harmful than good for our organizations. Therefore, we shouldn't invest in it at all. We have to really kind of combat that. Everyone who's a longtime listener of the podcast, especially if you watch the videos, you you know I'm a straight cisgender white dude. Um, so I have all of the layers of privilege. Um, and you know, I could potentially be one of those who could feel threatened by DEI efforts um mm. in organizations because perhaps in some way that could threaten my position of of you know power within organizations or whatever. Um but like you just said, I want this for me and the people around me. Um, I think because I know it's going to make life better for me. It's going to, it's, I, I want people to be treated with dignity and respect, but I also, I want to work for an organization like that. I want to, I, I want to work for an organization that values every individual contributor, uh, that treats people mm-hmm. well, that doesn't exploit people, that doesn't discriminate, mm. et cetera. Um, yeah. And re- regardless of your political leanings um, or whatever your, your particular um, categories are, you know, in terms of, of these different uh, demographics, it, I, I think ultimately it's in everyone's best interest to create this kind of uh, uh, really fostering uh, inclusive uh, environment of belonging uh, so that everyone has an opportunity to to achieve their potential and to thrive. Mm. Yeah. Uh, John, I'm really glad that you called that out and I appreciate, you know, uh, you know, the vulnerability of speaking, speaking to this subject from the the, the lived experience and, and sort of identity of, of, of every person. I think what's fascinating about the about DEI work in general is that every single person has a different psychological relationship to it based on their identity and their lived experience. And to your point, some folks are are threatened by it. Um, I really love the um, the the very vulnerable, open cisgender white male allies that show up and say, I'm, I'm, I want to be part of the solution here. And I don't see this as a threat. I see that if, you know, we create a fair, equitable place for everyone, the, the, all the boats rise with the tides, right? Um, yeah. And we need everyone around the table. I think there's been a perception that, you know, we should have, you know, allies kind of sit on the sidelines and not engage. Many, by the way, who are afraid of saying they're doing the wrong thing. And um, the sentiment of, you know, everyone, everyone's voice needing to be heard and everyone, everyone's participation um, truly being necessary for the work to work. And I think in, in the context of hiring, that's a, there's, a, there's a great example there. You know, a lot of organizations that are homogenous to begin with um, have to activate those well-meaning allies who might not have t- taken much, much action. If we want to see our, our processes change, if we want to see any of our recruiting efforts pay off, Right. This is a lot of the hiring managers, by the way, that are in positions of authority, mm-hmm, um, who mm-hmm. frankly sometimes have been the culprits of bad, bad behavior. <laughs> uh, 
uh, we have to get them on board. Uh, and, and they, you know, we have to ensure they're not breaking the rules uh, or they're not sort of veering away from the vision that the organization sets. Otherwise, I think we're not going to see a lot of progress. So I really am glad that you you brought that component into the conversation. To, to also highlight, uh, you've referred to this, I've referred to this, but it's worth just noting again, at this point, you know, we're talking about kind of the front end, right? Let's create, let's cast a wide net. Let's mm -hmm. um, attract a diverse pool. Let's, let's give everyone a, a, a truly equal fair shake uh, at getting hired into different positions. So we have diversity mm -hmm. hiring, et cetera. Um, let's, let's focus on all of that so we can have a good pipeline of great people coming to the organization. Um, but it is important to note that just because you get those people into the organization doesn't mean that you've solved the issue. <laughs> um, no, that's the, you're that's absolutely the, right. It's the first step, right? Uh, and from there, then you have to have that inclusive environment. You have to create a culture of belonging. And if you don't have, and you have to make sure that you rid the organization of inequitable, you know, systems and practices, the policies, practices, and procedures that often mm -hmm. persist, even unknowingly, you know, to some people um, that, that negatively impact the day-to-day -day lived experience of, of individuals when they go to the workforce. So you could, you could do a really great job of, of doing all of this diversity hiring stuff really, really well, spot on, mm -hmm. you get the great team to come, you, you make the good hires, but guess what? If it's not a great environment, those people yeah. aren't sticking around, they're going to leave. And That's so, right. so again, we're, we're talking right. about the first step, but fully acknowledging that there are additional steps in this whole process. That's 100% right. And I think a lot of organizations do see their primary uh, critical path being the top of funnel sourcing. Let's just get these candidates in the door. And, and, and you know, once, once we find these candidates, everything else will be solved. And to your point, not only do we have to think about the equity and accessibility and intention of our full process, our hiring process. Um, and by the way, a lot of candidates face the most significant bias um, at the moment that a job description is crafted and it has these inaccessible requirements or where so much bias comes up that I wrote about in the interview process, where I'm, I'm sure as you've seen, John, you know, there's so much subjectivity because we've had a lot of senior leaders, frankly, that have interviewed in a pretty uh, off the cuff uh, in, improv manner since the beginning of time, right? Um, so, so much inequity, you know, shows up after the the upfront sourcing. But to your point, John, a really good, a really, really clear point here that we have to be really intentional about how we're onboarding folks to set them up to be successful. Um, we see drop off of underrepresented new hires within the first 90 days if they're not set up for success. And then to your point that um, folks are given um, autonomy, mobility, um, safe uh, mechanisms to share feedback so that they're, they're set up to be successful and to, to stay in advance once they're in the organization. That's um, truly half the battle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. With all of that said, let's now drill down into a couple of these hiring practices that are the sure. best practices to make sure that we aren't inadvertently, you know, un, uh, unintentionally perhaps you know, narrowing um, unnecessarily so, by the way, a narrowing uh, our potential pool of applicants and making sure that we are truly equal employment opportunity organizations, not in just yeah. name only, but truly in, in every sense of the word. Um, one of yeah. the things you talked about, you know, was was just from the very inception of the position and, and the posting as you're starting to craft the job posting, uh, which is that initial yeah. first, very first step 
to even send a signal out that you're interested, that you want to find people. Um, what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen organizations fall into again and again uh, around the 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 job description and the posting uh, that then goes out and and can shape how people perceive the position and who's willing to even put their name forward? Yeah, it's a great question, and this is actually it's it's one of those uh, one of those issues that's in plain sight, and we oftentimes really overlook it. So if we think about the common way that a job description is crafted, right, from it from its genesis, it's oftentimes the case that you have a hiring manager who says, I want to hire for this role. The first thing I'm going to go do is I'm going to Google that job. I'm going to find the first job description that I, that I find. And I'm going to just put that into a document, maybe add a, a couple you know, edits. Typically, I'm not reducing anything. There's no reduction there at all. Um, and so what's happening is I'm literally, without a lot of thought, um, pulling through requirements that could have been literally written 20 years ago for that job rec. Um, and, and actually, sometimes that's the way recruiters op- operate as well. So what happens in all of this, it, it, you know, is that we are, we're typically paying way too much. We're adding, we're thinking in our head, I, I want to kind of imagine the perfect candidate. And this perfect candidate complex is something I, I try to talk a lot about. Because in a perfect candidate world, right, we start to say, well, it'd be wonderful if they had a PhD. It'd be wonderful if, if, you know, if they went to an Ivy League school, if they had a really high GPA. Um, all of this sort of exorbitant industry experience. It'd be wonderful if they actually had more experience than we needed. Um, and we could somehow get this deal on a really like overqualified candidate for a role that we're going to pay them less for, right? And in, in our minds, we start to kind of create this archetype of the perfect candidate. And we, we put in these credentials uh, into that, that archetype that are really unnecessary. What we're actually doing inadvertently is we're taking what could have been a very representative pool and we're restricting it to a very homogenous pool because if we think about historically, the folks that have had these exorbitant credentials, they have not been very representative, right? So the, the tactic for hiring managers and for recruiters alike is to strip away anything that is like what we would call non-essential. And this takes actually quite a bit of energy, right? It's to think about, well, maybe I don't need, just as some, some examples, I don't need an advanced degree. Can I provide an alternate to a degree? Can there be years of experience that are commensurate to a degree, right? Um, can I eliminate ranges of years? A lot of job descriptions, I'm sure you've seen, John, have like 10 to 15 years or these wide ranges. What has been statistically proven to happen is that an underrepresented candidate sees a range of years. If they come in at the bottom end of it, they're less likely to pursue that opportunity. And we found this, um, especially among women, if a, if, if Women, you know, statistically proven, um, don't tend to meet all the requirements for the job. It is less likely they will apply to that job than a man, right? So we see the inequities that already are created when we have these exorbitant requirements. So we really coach folks to strip away anything that's not necessary. Focus on competencies, not on years, not on um, not on degrees. Um, and if we get focused on what you will actually do in this job and, and what you need to deliver to be successful. Um, That's a much more equitable way to craft that role. And again, less is more. Yeah. And just as an illustration to to the point, years of experience, that's been one of my pet peeves for decades. Um, Because what does it really tell you? 
um, I don't think it tells you what you think it tells you most of the time. Right. And and one right. of the things that, that I often will say to to leaders is, you know, say, say it's even like five years of experience. Okay. What does that mean? Five years of experience. Are you going to uh, put someone forward as a better candidate because they have five years of crappy experience versus the mm-hmm. one the one person who has, you know, a year and is hungry and motivated and is a fast learner and is, you know, uh, you know, they're going to come in and they're going to hit the ground running. Like in what world would you say the person with five years is better for the position than that other person? I don't think most people yeah. would say that. Most people wouldn't say that yeah. when, and when it's framed to them that way, yet we're mm. artificially creating that dynamic within the pool of candidates uh, and you're, you're having people selecting you're, you're pushing them out of the pool, whether they're self-selecting out or, or you're signaling to them that they should, you know, apply or telling them that they shouldn't apply. And, and ultimately you end up with people who may be a good fit, but Mm. just as likely may not be because that, that arbitrary years of experience doesn't really tell you much of anything. uh, That's exactly right. And their ability to do, to do the job well. Um, and it, it can be the same thing with, with, uh, with college degrees. Now I'm a professor. I yeah. think college is important. I want people to go to college and get degrees and get certified and et cetera. And I think those will serve people well for the most part in their careers. But mm-hmm. I'll be the first one to tell you that to just have an arbitrary requirement that you have to have a bachelor's degree for a position for no other reason than that's what you've always done. Um, that yeah. doesn't make any sense, Right. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, we, I mean, these are two interesting statistics. The first is that we start to make our initial decisions about a candidate's suitability in seven seconds of reading their profile. And the second is that in an interview, typically the interviewers decided within the first 15 minutes of the call, whether the candidate um, is suitable for the role. So we're making really fast snap decisions, typically very subjectively with a lot of bias. Um, and it goes to show that, um, you know, just as much as the candidate has to be able to sort of see this role and see if they're qualified, we have to be able to kind of rethink how we how we look at a candidate holistically. And we don't use these um, what I you know we we would call uh, you know essentially you know shorthand mechanism for deciding on a candidate suitability prematurely, right? Yeah, yeah. And to your point about diverse pools, uh, we we are unnecessarily restricting the 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 diversity not not just race gender um you know those types of categories but socioeconomic mm. diversity like there's all yes. sorts of things that feed into this um that we are unnecessarily narrowing the pool by having mm. this tack on list of all these different requirements that may or may not be all that important to the ability yeah. for someone to perform well in the job. Uh, yes. And so, you know, I, I've heard it many times as I've talked to leaders, you know, and they, they're dealing with diversity issues and I'll say, Hey, can I, can I look at some of your recent job postings? Um, you know, and, and, and I'll look at them and immediately I'm like, well, no, no wonder <laughs> that you, your, your, uh, staff is like 90% white men. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's no wonder because, uh, everything is designed in such a way to disproportionately elevate, um, yeah. applicants, uh, from yeah. that population. And it's, it's, you know, I, I point that out and they're like, no, 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 no. We're not racist. We're not sexist. We're not, we're not, we're, we're giving yeah. everyone a fair shake. We, we just, we're just, we're just putting in there what is necessary 
qualifications to be able to perform the job. And, and the yeah. only people that are qualified tend to be white men. And so it's not our fault. That's kind of the dialogue mm. that I often hear. Right. And I'm like, right. and I'm like, really, really? You think the only people right. qualified? <laughs> um, and well, right, right. Good. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it's spot on, John. And this is the, this is where I think, you know, recruiters, anyone that is that participates in the hiring process has a role to play in shifting that narrative, because you're right. There are oftentimes leaders who feel very validated in their approach to say, I'm looking for someone with all of these very specific things. And it's typically the white man, right? And, you know, we have a chance to kind of push back and say, what does it really mean to be successful in this role? You know, and how can we overcome these, 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 you know, preconceptions, right? And, and myths that might, we might've had about, you know, sort of what sets someone up for success. Um, and we really need, we, 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 we refer to this concept of case studies. Case studies, you know, um, have long stood the test of time in almost every, every space, but in, in inclusive hiring, case studies are the examples of, you know, sort of breaking the mold and the unconventional successes that actually kind of emerged from us, you know, taking a different approach, opening up the pool, right? Rethinking requirements, taking a more structured approach. So I think the more that we have these case studies, they become kind of our currency to get this work to scale. Arthur, this has just been a real pleasure. I know we've only scratched the surface, but you have a book that goes into great detail on all these topics and related topics. Uh, as we wrap things up for today, I just wanted to uh, give you a chance to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, where they can find your book, sure. and then give us the final word on the topic for today. Thank you, John. Well, um, I'm a partner at Plenty Search. We help uh, early stage companies build their leadership teams. We have an amazing track record on diversity. So um, for, for companies that are hiring and trying to build, build their leadership teams inclusively, um, we enjoy partnering. You can learn more about us at plentysearch.com and then hiring for diversity at hiringfordiversity.com. Um, you know what I would, I would end by saying is we really need everyone. Um, you know, Typically, this conversation, you know, the, the diversity recruiting topic reaches audiences that I would call kind of the choir being preached to. And what I would sort of challenge the folks who are nodding their head in, a, in, our, in our dialogue, John, who are saying, yes, I know, it's the yes, take this to the person that doesn't know. Take this to the person that's pushed back and has honestly maybe been the bottleneck in this work taking off. And every single conversation is, is a chance for us to make progress even plant a seed that will shift someone's perspective down the line. So I would say never overlook or take for granted the chance to, to shift the way that someone thinks about this work. Um, it, we are definitely all making improvements together and, it, and we're all in it together. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Arthur, it's been a pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Arthur can do for you. Check out the book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe. They can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.